I've asked you just to spend a few moments uh, talking a little bit about how he became a Christian. Uh, he grew up on the same estate as Alex Ferguson, Govan in Glasgow. Yep. Yep. I think you look like him yeah, a little. People say that, yeah. But you're about two years different in age. Yeah. So you didn't go to the same school as him? Or no, no. No, okay. He went to the same school as my sister. Okay. Yeah. Well, he's going to tell us a little bit about how he became a Christian. And then we're going to do some other things. We, and, and then he later is going to do a talk uh, from the Bible for us. So I'm going to hand over to you for a few minutes okay. to tell us your story. Thank you. Thank you, Ian. Well, good morning, folks. It's, it is good to, to be with you. Uh, yeah, I, obviously, I'm from Glasgow. Uh, <coughs> 19, uh, a long time ago. In 1982, I was not a Christian. I had really no time for the church. I wasn't angry against it or anything I just it wasn't for me I was a businessman I was uh, making my way in the world uh, I had my big house uh, big car boat all the important things the things that the world says are important and church nowhere in all of that married uh, I had three children in fact we stopped after three because I read somewhere that every fourth person born in the world is Chinese <laughs> <laughs> Being in, we owned a printing trade, a printing company, and, and uh, our big customer was the Scotch whisky industry. They were the big, the obvious big customer in Scotland. And one of the problems was uh, I, I developed a drink habit, a drink problem, and uh, by 1982 I, I was an alcoholic. My, my marriage was suffering, uh, the family were suffering, the business was suffering, my health was suffering, and the hellish thing was I could see nothing wrong. And I would say, it's my life, and I'll do with it as I want. I work hard, and I'll play hard. It's none of your business. And, and that was the scene. That was it. One Friday evening, it was the 30th of April, which of course is next Saturday, uh, which is really just uh, becomes about the 29th year since this all happened. Uh, <clears throat> Friday evening, uh, around about 8 o'clock in, in our house, in Glasgow. My wife had gone, Joyce had gone to visit her mother on the other side of the city. My oldest daughter had gone to the guides. My son was at the scouts and my youngest one daughter was fast asleep. And around about 8 o'clock at night I had this, this vision. And, and, and the vision, the only way I've ever been able to describe it, it just looked like a lunar landscape. The way we saw the lunar landscape with the spaceships going down onto the moon through the late 60s and 70s. It was freezing cold and absolutely terrifying. A way beyond fear. Petrifying. And I stood, and, and the, the thought came into my mind that, <clears throat> you know, I'd always said that if there was a God, why doesn't he just do something? I mean, why all the, the Bible and Jesus and the church, and why doesn't he just do something? And I had this sense that God was, in fact, doing something, and what I was seeing was where I was heading. And I had this impulse to get a Bible. Now, of course, I had no Bible. And if you had asked me, I would have said, there's no Bible in my house. But my mother had given me a Bible when I was 21. That was 21 years previously. I walked across to this bookcase, put my hand in behind the books, and brought out that copy of the Bible my mother had given me 21 years previously that I never really opened, and it fell open at the Gospel of John. 
And I stood there reading how he, Jesus, came as light into the darkness. And somehow holding this Bible with his vision all around me, it was like a life belt. There was something safe. Uh, I phoned a neighbor. I had a neighbor who was a Christian. And i got to be honest, he was a pain. You know, he kept inviting me to things, you know, gospel services. And we're having that Easter service at the rugby club. Why don't you come? You know, I've come on, you know. But he was a good neighbor. And my wife got on and the kids got on. So every so often I would go to something. So I phoned Ian and Ian came round, more or less within minutes. And he found me outside the house, white and trembling. We went into the house. He could see nothing, but it was still all there. He took my hand and he prayed. And when he prayed, the vision went, the temperature came back to normal, and the petrifying feeling left. I was still scared, but not, not like I had been. Ian wasn't sure what was happening, but that's the way God was moving. My wife came home uh, from her mum's and said that that evening over at mum's house, the local minister had paid a visit. And when he asked Joyce how things were with her, Joyce broke into tears telling him just how bad it all was and the minister said to Joyce and she told me that he said that uh, well, all I can do for you Joyce is pray for you and Hugh and for the family and Joyce says so he, he prayed for us and I said what time was that and Joyce said well be about 8 o'clock tonight and I said well wait till you hear what happened here at 8 o'clock tonight and I then told her what had happened uh, the following morning <coughs> was Saturday morning <coughs> I discovered that my desire for alcohol had gone completely. I, I took a bottle of whiskey, and at that stage I was drinking about a bottle of whiskey a day. I took a bottle of whiskey, and I poured it down the sink in our kitchen. And I said to Joyce, I'm not sure what's happening, but I know that this no longer plays any part in our life. And then on the following day, the Sunday, I went to church for the first time meaningfully in my life. And believe it or not, I was frightened to go to church. So here you have the businessman, successful, frightened to go to church. And that's why, you know, situations like this are great. Because it is very difficult for men, like I'm describing, to walk through a church door. Very, very difficult. It's a million times easier to walk into a rugby club. And I went to church that morning, and when I walked in the door, a voice spoke within me and said, Welcome home. Welcome home. And my thought went back immediately to 1956, Ibrox Park, Glasgow, Billy Graham. I responded to his invitation and went down onto the hallowed turf. I did. And I had forgotten all about it. Welcome home. You forgot about me, but I have never forgotten about you. And that morning... The preacher read from Romans chapter 8, and when he got to the words that nothing shall separate us from the love of Jesus Christ, it suddenly dawned on me. This broke through that Christ indeed had died for my sins. He had taken all the wrong things that I have done, and I had done them. He had taken that lot to the cross. And because he was perfect and sinless, he could be the acceptable sacrifice I could never be. And he died in my place. And I realized, too, that he said, you're either for him or you're against him. There's no sitting in the fence. You're for Jesus, you're against Jesus, and that's it. And I most definitely had not been for him. 
And I sat with tears streaming down my face, realizing the truth, that if my sin had been dealt with in Calvary's cross by Jesus Christ, I was forgiven. It had been dealt with. I was set free from the condemnation that I deserved. Well, I went to see the Christian of the Friday night that Sunday afternoon, told him what had happened, and now he knew clearly what God was doing. And I got onto my knees, I told God I was sorry, Sorry for what I'd done, how I'd offended him, I'd broken the commandments left, right, and center. I asked for his forgiveness, and I said, please, take over my life for me and for my family. I went hold, I told Joyce. She did the same thing. And we had a whole new change house. Family, marriage, totally, totally changed. From that moment on, things changed. Love, compassion, patience, joy came into our home. Of course, I had a business, <clears throat> which is an absolute mess. The boss had been drinking all the profits, and I decided I was no longer going to deal with the whiskey trade. And I went to see the bank manager, and I said, I am recognizing Jesus Christ as the chairman of my company. I'm going to stop printing with the whiskey trade. I'm going to start on Monday morning with a prayer meeting. We're going to have a Bible study in the factory every Thursday with an evangelist speaking to whoever he wants. I'm going to print for Bible societies and missionary organizations. I'm going to employ Christian men in Berlini prison who can never get a job, who have become Christians. I'm going to employ them. You see, either God is who he says he is. Either he is the awesome, almighty, glorious God with a great game plan. And this is just where we get ready for what's to come. And he's working it all through here. Either he is, or he's not. And if he is, and we believe he is, we cannot lose. We can't lose. And I just took him at his word, called him the chairman, and the miracles began to happen. I don't have time to tell you this morning, but what I have done, I put it into a book. And it's called, I Did It His Way. And I am getting phone calls and emails and letters of how God is using this book. Lives are changing. The whole story is in here of our company, how it happened, how we ended up losing our company, going through all the difficulties of losing everything. Is God still good? I mean, God's good when he breaks into your marriage and home and family and takes you away from alcoholism and restores everything. God is great. But is he still good when you lose your home and lose your business and lose everything? Is he still good? That's the challenge, Christian. And in a time like this, with a credit crunch and all the rest of it, is he going to be good when you get made redundant? <clears throat> is God still good then? Well, he is. And his ways are not our ways. And his plan will work through. But often it's with hindsight. A year, two, five down the road, we'll look back and say, ah, if only I'd known then what God was doing. He doesn't let us know. That's faith. That's faith. So please, if you want a copy of the book afterwards, it's seven pounds. If you don't have the money with you, take a book, give your name to Ian, and he'll get the money from you and square up with you afterwards. It's good to talk to you, and I look forward to talking to you later. Thank you. On Easter Sunday morning, it's uh, quite traditional that we look at a passage reflecting upon the resurrection of Jesus. <clears throat> and when I was preparing and, and read this about the, the, two, the two ladies going to anoint Jesus, I was tempted to head the message something like the Spice Girls. 
but I thought maybe that might not be right for the Sunday morning. You know, hearts were heavy. Hope was gone. The, the miracle working master Jesus, who they believed was Christ, the, the long, eagerly awaited Messiah, it was dead. The excitement, the hopes, the dreams built over three incredible years taken from them in a nightmare experience. It, it was only last Sunday when they were part of that master's triumphal entry into Jerusalem with all the joyful cries of Hosanna, Hosanna, praise you the Lord, rending the air and moving the city. And then on Friday, arrested, tried, sentenced and horribly crucified. And the Sabbath Saturday spent in a state of shock and utter bewilderment. I mean, look at what he did. The healings, the miracles. We thought he was the one. How could it end like this? And now, in the stillness of the early dawn on Sunday morning, that small group of ladies who have served and loved their Lord make their way to the tomb intent on embalming the body of Jesus and remembering that great stone guarding the entrance to the grave, realizing it would be impossible for them to remove it, they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance to the tomb? And that stone has a unique significance for Christians. So, so let's look at what the stone has to say to us this Easter morning. Who will roll the stone away from the entrance to the tomb. <clears throat> you know, <clears throat> within that question lies a quest that has troubled men and, and women for centuries. Who will move the stone? And as we make our way through life, th there seems to be barriers that, that, that stop us experiencing the fulfillment and the happiness that we desire and were promised. At first glance, and at a superficial level, it often seems to be people or adverse circumstances that stand in our way or hold us back from, you know, achieving their aspirations and what have you. But thinking men and women realize it's more than that. Because when we achieve our goals, whether it be marriage, home, family, career, finance, travel, freedom, whatever, we're often left feeling dissatisfied, unfulfilled, and empty. Always the unforeseen to, to, to dampen and destroy the what might have been, be it health, redundancy, or, or broken relationships. Or more often than not, <clears throat> just the, the realization that the journey was better than the arrival. And songwriters and authors have long majored on this human dilemma. The, the, the hungry years. Remember Neil Sedaka's song, The Hungry Years? That, that when, when couples are, are striving together for the future, they so often find that these years were more fulfilling than when they arrive only to discover they have been building castles in the air. 
And this leads us to be aware that deep within the human makeup is a force that compels us to, to move on, to seek better and more, and never to be satisfied. A, a restless, damaging force capable of destroying everything, I, everyone that we love. And the Bible names that force and it calls it sin. And that's the rock standing in the way of all men and women. And suddenly we begin to understand, not only is this rock an obstacle to our progress through life, thwarting our plans and ambitions by motivating us into selfish decisions, destroying our life and those of those people around us, it's also a rock that many carry all through their lives. And that's the burden that Jesus removes at the cross. <coughs> But there's more. <clears throat> Through the centuries, men and women have argued and hoped, and some have even dared to believe in the possibility of life beyond the grave, recognizing that death was a huge and immovable barrier standing in our way. And given the, the paradox of the, the tantalizing prospect of an ascent to immortality hampered by the uncertainty of unbelief and fear of the unknown. Who will roll that stone away? On the one hand, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> you have generation after generation suffering the agony of bereavement whilst burying their friends and their loved ones. And yet on the other hand, there was that whisper of a resurrection hope a, a, a biblical promise which which gives rise to that feeling that there must be more than this you know as a church pastor over 20 years I, I have taken many funerals and one of the things I've often done is when I get near the end of the funeral service the crematorium or the grave site or whatever I look at the coffin <coughs> or the casket and I say come on if this is how it ends, God is unfair. I mean, come on. Think of some of your lives and the problems and the ill health and the difficulties and the things that happened to you that were not your fault. If, if this is how it ends and comes to an end like this, God would be dreadfully unfair, bringing us into this world through our life for this. But God says, no, God said, it doesn't end here. This is just the beginning. This is just the start. And the Old Testament showed the examples of this. Ezekiel, the dry bones living again. The suffering servant in Isaiah 53. All the, <coughs> all the tantalizing prospects of life beyond the grave. But the difficulty was, there was a lack of detail. A lack of precision. Who is he? How is it going to happen? Who's going to make all this work? And all of that was so unclear for the men and for the women down the centuries. Who will come and open up the grave to allow us to go in and out? And that's what Jesus did. You see, with the resurrection from the grave, what Jesus did was, he said to us in effect, what I've done for myself, I can do for you. In other words, put your money where your mouth is. It's one thing hearing the talk. Oh, don't worry. You're okay after death. I'll take care of you after death. It's one thing hearing the talk. 
But what we want is somebody who dies, clearly dies, visibly dies. No question, no historical, nobody questions that the carpenter from Nazareth was put in a cross. Fact, boom. And then the resurrection from the dead with all the hundreds and hundreds of witnesses, the most attested event in ancient history. And Jesus says, what I did for me, I can do for you. The stone removed. And it not only symbolizes the resurrection of Jesus from the grave, allowing him out, so to speak, but it allows us in to see for ourselves that terror has gone. The Bible said the sting of death has been removed. It holds no power and no fear over those who love and follow the death destroyer. <clears throat> Remember, on Good Friday, from the cross, Jesus said, It is finished. Now, that was his cry, Telatestai in Greek. It is finished. Death was finished. It no longer had the power over men and women that it had exerted since the dawn of time. And so you can wipe away your tears when you commit the body of a believing friend, a loved one to the grave. And I emphasize a believing friend, a loved one. And, and, and don't allow your heart to grow heavy as age, gray hair, sickness, and all the signs of advancing years tell you of death's impending call. It will come. But if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, then the barrier has been removed. And you step forward into the valley of the shadow and you hold the hand of the good shepherd and you go into glory forever after. You look forward to this. And look how he removed the stone. I mean, it wasn't just kind of gently rolled away. It was flung aside. You know, it reminds me of the story. Do you remember the story of Samson in the book of Judges? In the, in the book, in Judges 16, he spent the night in Gaza, surrounded by the enemy, bent on killing him. And he rose in the middle of the night, and he took hold of the doors of the city gates, the posts, the uprights, the bars, and everything, and he tore them all loose, and putting them on his shoulder, he carried them away from the Philistine stronghold, leaving it open and exposed. And that's exactly what Jesus has done. He has dealt with the grave, that old fortress of death and hell, leaving it <clears throat> as a city stormed and taken with no power and no fear. Our sins, they were the, the, the great stone that trapped us in death's grip, holding us captive to darkness and to despair. And now our sins are rolled away. See, what I said to you this morning was sitting in that church in my testimony, realizing that Christ has died for our sins. He, he took the pain. He took the punishment. Oh, you, know, you know the jealousies and the angers and the things that you've done over the years. And some, you know, some of them are awful. You know that. And some of them are too, too terrible. And some of them only you know. And rightly so. We don't want to hear them. They're awful. But God knows. And they've all got to be dealt with. Because if not, again, it's utterly unfair. There has to be a, a, an accountability, a responsibility, a summing up to make it all fair. And it is. And that's what God has done. He's gone before us. He's opened it up. 
And that stone becomes a memorial to the, the victory of Jesus over death. But you know, there is more too, because the stone represents a foundation. The fact of Christ's resurrection from the dead is the foundation upon which Christianity is built. See, if you disprove the resurrection of the Lord, then our faith would be a myth. There would be nothing upon which to rest our faith if he who died upon the cross did not also rise from the grave. Then, said Paul, your faith would be futile. You would still be your sins, while those who were fallen asleep in Christ would be lost. All the great doctrines of our faith fall apart if you remove the keystone of the resurrection, for all our hope hinges upon that fact. If Jesus rose, then sin has been dealt with, death has been defeated, and his glorious gospel is everything that he says it is. And if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then it's all deceit and delusion. But thank God, historical proof and personal testimony from so many witnesses of such differing character established the fight fully and with nothing to gain except suffering and death. The men and the women who were with him and who saw him gave testimony to the resurrection with the result that has become the most attested event recorded in the annals of ancient history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. And herein lies our hope. This is the statement of our faith. This is what we believe. If his atoning sacrifice, his rose from the dead, hadn't taken place, it's all meaningless. But we are persuaded that it has taken place. And upon that rock we build our church, the rock of faith. And another use for the stone is a boundary. This story is no different. On, on, on one side you have the guards, terrified, stiff with fear, as though dead. And on this side, two trembling ladies to whom the angels speak softly. It's verse 6. Don't be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus in Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. Can you see this stone <clears throat> as a boundary between the living and the dead? Between those who seek and those who fear and hate. Be between those who are the friends and those who are the foes of Jesus. Isaiah the prophet said, Jesus would be a stone that would cause men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And, and scripture records that when Paul preached on Mars Hill, it comes in Acts 17, he spoke to the Greek philosophers some of them sneered in derision. And you say, that's understandable. I mean, what, what do they have to gain? Nothing. You see, Jesus Christ made it perfectly clear, if you are with him in this life, you will be with him in the next life. And for those who are not with him, they cannot expect the Jesus that they have scorned ignored, sworn. We can't expect to die and discover the awful, awful truth 
and then say, oh, Jesus, I'm sorry, remember me. It doesn't work like that. It would be quite nice if it did. But Jesus says it doesn't. The hand you hold in this life is the hand you hold through eternity. Who you, who hand are you holding? Who are you nearer? To Jesus? His thinking? His personality? His presence? Or the other hand? The hand of Satan, which is greedy, selfish, jealous, look after yourself, get what you want. The hand you hold in this life is the hand you will hold throughout eternity. And, and I tell you, no matter what you think, and no matter how you can argue, and you can, you can go on and on and on, backwards and forwards. Jesus Christ made it perfectly clear. The day will come when the trumpet will sound. The dead in Christ will rise, and those who believe in him will be with him, and those who don't and have never believed in him will not be with him for eternity. And this poses a question this Easter morning. Where are you? What side of that boundary do you stand? Have you found a new life in Christ? Have you trusted him for your salvation? Have you knelt before the cross in tears of repentance and remorse? So difficult to do, especially for blokes. So really difficult to say I was wrong. I've blown it. I've made a mess of my life. It hasn't been what it should be. I've sinned. I've broken the commandments. And I'm sorry. And guys find this particularly difficult to do. But if you can do it, and you do do it, then you walk forward with the hand of Jesus in your life. There's something else to think about. When I speak to, to, to men and women who, who, who profess not to believe in Jesus, and I do a lot, I say, where do you think you're going after death? The vast majority of people would say, I don't think I go anywhere. I think when you die, you snuff it. And that's it. You just, it's gone. But that, that's, that's what evolution teaches Evolution teaches that when you die, that's it gone. Now, now think of this. If that's true, and you die, you snuff it, there's nothing else. If it's true, the non-believer will never have the satisfaction of knowing they're right. Okay? If you die and you snuff it, there's no more, then the non-believer will never have the satisfaction of saying, I told you so, see? Because you snuffed it. And if it's true, if it's true, the Christian would never have regret to say they were wrong. Because they're never going to know they're wrong. Because they snuffed it. Right? That's the logic. That is the logic. You agree with me? But if it's not true, if Jesus is true, and I tell you, it takes a real person with a strong faith to say Jesus is wrong if he's true then you've got everything to live for after death it just begins you know it just starts to make sense life after death it starts to make sense of all we've gone through in this life in the history of the world in this life the grand glorious plan you know God works in his ways they're not our ways we, we, you know, we have got no say when we're born. None. We don't have any say when we die. None. But that short space in between, we act as if we're masters of the universe. It's astonishing. 
even just saying, you know, I don't believe in him, it's quite incredible. This arrogance in the human makeup. We know nothing, and yet we act as if we're, we're gods. And he works his way, his special way, and it's not our way. We can't figure out God. God is unfathomable, but he does reveal himself, and he shows enough of himself for us to trust him. And the more you get to know him, the bigger he becomes. The more you get to know human beings, even the best, you start seeing their faults. And you get to know them closer, and you start thinking, mm. and, and so it goes on. That's, that's, that's human. The more you get to know Jesus, the bigger he gets, and the better he gets, and the more wonderful he becomes. And that will go on throughout all of eternity. God, he removes our burdens, he removes our challenges, he transforms lives. Listen, listen. Think of the Bible. How, how does God? How does God react to a parent's dashed hope? Well, you read the story of Jairus and his dead daughter. How does the father feel about those who are ill? Well, you stand with him at the pool of Bethesda. Do you long for God to, to, to listen to, to a? A, a, a perplexed and a bewildered heart you don't quite understand, then you listen to him as he speaks to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. What's God's word for the shameful? Well, you watch him drawing in the dust of Jerusalem courtyard. And God is doing all that, not just for them. He's doing it for you and for me. And this is so important. This is the wonder of the stone being rolled away and this resurrection message that salvation starts now, today. Your burdens are listed, lifted at Calvary. You know, I, I can introduce you to a solicitor whose work and marriage and family were suffering from his alcoholism. And he will tell you how he found Jesus Christ, he became a Christian, his marriage was restored, his family was all put back together again, his desire for alcohol was removed, and his life, his wife, his family, his children would be unrecognizable today from what they were 10, 12 years ago. I remember a lady who, who didn't love her husband, and he was beside himself with worry. He came to church, found Jesus, became a Christian. Shortly afterwards, she followed him. They were baptized, Christian couple, Christian family, Christian home, building a whole new relationship, a new whole Christian home and family to the glory of God. I tell you, God rolls the stones away. He restores our lives. I know of a lady in poor, poor health broken marriage behind her who wanted to end her life she was contemplating suicide she found Jesus became a Christian found a Christian man and I had the pleasure of marrying this couple and now with him their marriage and two young sons they have a Christian home a Christian family and for her that which she would believe impossible has happened 
praise God, he rolls the stone away. Listen to the the last paragraph of the book. Most people don't give you the last paragraph, do they? You know, but listen. <clears throat> the bottom line is this. If I had been left in my former lifestyle, I would by now be dead, in hospital, in prison, or living as an embittered, lonely alcoholic in some dingy flat. Whereas by accepting Christ's gift of salvation and his invitation to follow him, I have enjoyed a loving marriage, a terrific family life with three great children, and an exciting and fulfilling work, which has brought me genuine friends the length and breadth of the country. And even more, I can look forward with complete assurance to walking through the valley of the shadow of death, holding the nail-pierced hand of the Good Shepherd and enjoying his company throughout eternity. You can't beat that. There used to be a stone in front of the tomb. And there are stones in front of your path. There are stones that trip and stones that trap. There are stones that are too big for you to move. But you can learn what the two Marys learned when they arrived at the tomb and looked up and saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. And so my invitation and my prayer to you this Easter is that God will grant you the faith to look up and discover that the stone is not here. He's not in the grave. He has risen. And he will change your life in ways indescribable if you but trust him. But you have to do it. Remember that famous scene, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Jesus, the door, the sinner inside. There is no handle outside on Jesus' side of the door. Jesus will not open the door and come in. You have to open the door and invite him in. And this is important. So invite him into your life. Talk to, talk to us afterwards. Talk to Ian. Talk to me. Talk to committed Christians. And use this opportunity this day. Praise God. Amen. Amen.